If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51. And as you turn there, um, Kelly, thank you for putting together a great morning yesterday for us with the outreach. That was awesome. Uh, So, um, the question I have for us to kind of get us thinking about the text this morning is, and I know it's going to come across as a strange question, maybe one we don't think about often, but I think it's very appropriate when we consider David's words this morning. If you had one hour to live and you could have one song going through your mind for comfort and encouragement. What would it be? You don't have to say it out loud. Some of you might be thinking about songs you grew up listening to, maybe a favorite song from a genre of music that um, you appreciate. But I wonder if we could approach this question through a different way, because I think sometimes we forget that the Psalms are songs that were to be sung in worship of God. And I think that Psalm 51 is a song that we should know very well as we walk with the Lord. The early church father, Athanasius, once recommended to Christians that they recite Psalm 51 when they wake up, When they stay up and even in the middle of the night. Martin Luther once claimed there is no other psalm more often sung or prayed in the church than Psalm 51. A lesser known Protestant reformer named Victor Striegel said of Psalm 51, this psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book and contains instructions so large And doctrines so precious that the tongue of angels could not do justice to the full development of it. Charles Spurgeon said, this psalm is a matchless psalm well suited for the individual as well as the assembly of the poor in spirit. Psalm 51 brings together the painful reality and depth of sin, and the wonder of divine mercy. It brings that that tension of the sinfulness of our sin and the greatness of God as the sinner approaches the holiness of the Lord. This psalm comes to us as a psalm of lament, and it's one of the categories that are mentioned in the psalms, and there are a few of them. And in these lament psalms, this, the psalmist is crying out to God as a result of the struggles that they are feeling in their hearts. It's a psalm of repentance and confession. This psalm, and what's wonderful for us is we don't have to guess why David wrote it and when he wrote it in his life. If you notice in your Bibles, there's a a superscription above it. And that's inspired to the text. That wasn't added in later on by people that were translating the text and printing the Bible. We read in Psalm 51 
that this psalm is for the choir director. So it's meant to be sung. It's a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. This song was to be sung in the worship of God's people as a remembrance of the time when King David sinned horribly and horrendously in his actions with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. We've been looking at this in David's life over the last few weeks. In 2 Samuel 11, we we came across that text where David stayed home from war and he was out on his rooftop and in the spring air and he noticed a woman bathing. And David should have known better. I mean, here is a man that had many wives and concubines and yet he had these insatiable appetites, these fleshly appetites. And he sees this woman, he inquires about her and there, his servant is like, hey, that, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife and he's like bring her to me and so she comes and they lay together and he commits adultery and she commits adultery and it was supposed to be a one-night thing Uriah's off at war no one's going to know about it the problem is Bathsheba became pregnant and David scrambled and he began putting in plans in place of, okay, how am I going to remedy my problems? And have you ever noticed in your own life when you try to remedy your problems your way, how does that work out for you? Terribly. It's not even close. We might find momentary relief, but the long-term troubles stay with us. And so uh, through a series of plans and, and really the integrity of Uriah, David's had enough. And so he writes a death decree, hands it to Uriah, sealed, and he sends him off to the front lines to be killed. And David is guilty as a murderer. After Uriah dies, news comes back. Bathsheba goes through her time of grief and mourning. And then a long period of time occurs in David's life when he is not close to the Lord. He's not walking with the Lord. Here, this man after God's own heart is captive to his sin. He is imprisoned in his mind, in his heart, in his conscience. To the sinfulness of his choices. He has no joy in his life. And by the grace of God, God sent a man to David and said, David, wake up. And we looked at that last week in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan, the prophet, was sent to David and through a story was able to, to wake David up to the sinfulness of his sin And he says, you are that man in that story that did those horrible things. And when David was awakened to the terribleness of his choices, what did he say? Very rightly so, David said, I have sinned against God. What's amazing for us 
Because in 2 Samuel 12, we just get that statement, I've sinned against the Lord. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now we get to take another step back and we get to look into David's heart into that season in his life when he was coming alive to the holiness of God and, and how the Spirit of God was awakening him through confession and repentance of what was going on inside of him. And this is how Psalm 51 is delivered to us. For almost a year of David's life, he went on like nothing had happened. And as the Lord was dealing with David as a, as a result of his sin, we have these words now. Now, you might be thinking this morning, so what does this have to do with me? I mean, I, I didn't do the things, the terrible things that David did. But this psalm is for any person who has sinned. Of course it is. It's for the person here or the person watching on our live stream who has also has a woefully shallow and inadequate view of their sin and has an inadequate view of the glory of God's mercy. The psalm is for you. The psalm is for the others who have fallen headlong into egregious sin and wonder if there is any hope. And you wonder if God will ever forgive you and if you could ever be useful again. This psalm is for you. There might be others who know the daily battle of sin. And you think, Lord, why? Why does it seem like I keep falling? Falling short of God's glory. This psalm is for you. I mean, the issue isn't whether or not Christians sin. We sin and we sin often. And since we sin so often, we need to confess frequently. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I sin in a multitude of ways, right? I mean, that's just me. Maybe you're like me. But in the different ways that I sin, I can sometimes convince myself thinking, why can't I just overcome sin in general? And then I'm ashamed and I, I, I feel like I, I can't go to the Lord. And I create all of these arguments in my mind. Like, I don't even need the de devil whispering in my ear saying, he's not going to forgive you. He doesn't love you. He's not going to bring you back. All those things. Like, I don't even need that. I'm a prisoner of my own sinful heart and I can do a pretty good job of saying, gee, why can't I just overcome this sin in general? And this psalm is so helpful, so precious. Because it reminds me that God desperately wants to restore me. That he wants to heal me. That he wants to set me free. And so I implore you 
that you should read Psalm 51 and pray through it, especially when you feel guilty or have sinned. I was reading a, a kind of like a blog post this week about um, just one pastor's observations about ministry that he's in. And he was talking about, you know, one of the, the biggest things that he sees Christians struggling with in their everyday life is their lack of um, power in their prayer life. You know, like every Christian knows they should pray, right? But if you were to like ask Christians, how was your prayer life? They would say, I, I wish it could be better. And he was talking about this and, and, and his point was sometimes the lack in our prayer life is because we are not praying specifically about things. And, and because we're not praying specifically about things, we don't see how God is answering specifically. Like we throw up these general prayers and say, God bless me or God help me. And, and like we just paint the whole canvas with one broad brush stroke. And then God's working, and, and because we've prayed generically and not specifically, we're not seeing His hand working. And I would say to you that if you're struggling in your prayer life, and when you have sin in your life, and you want to make it right with God and go before Him, and you're struggling to figure out, God, how do I put into words the things that are in my heart that I can't even find a way to bring to you? Go to Psalm 51. In, in sincerity, believe what David is praying and singing to God. And I, I offer to you that that would be a wonderful prayer to pray to him. As you seek help in finding victory over your sin. There's great theology in this psalm. And there's also this great observation of the human heart in this psalm. And so I hope you see this psalm is for you. It's for me. It helps us to understand what true and genuine repentance is all about. Repentance is not something we do once and we're done and think, okay, I came to, to faith in Jesus and I turned away and I turned towards him and, and I'm done repenting. It's ongoing. In fact, Martin Luther, who I quoted earlier, one of the Protestant reformers, said this, all of life is repentance. Turning from and forsaking sin and turning towards Christ. He said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he wanted the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So what can David, a man after God's own heart, who fell tragically, teach us about true and genuine repentance? Well, let's get into the text. I want to read the whole psalm to you, and then we're going to walk through it together. And as we read the psalm together, I want you to observe something as we're reading David's heart as he cries out to God. David makes no excuses for what he's done. He doesn't blame anyone else. He doesn't tone down the gravity of his offenses. David owns his sinful actions. And so let's read what he sings. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities." Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight light and sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise by your favor. Do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. No excuses. Just an honest heart before a holy God. And when you look at how David starts this prayer in verses 1 and 2, I mean, he goes to the only place that he can begin, right? I mean, when we are humbled by the sinfulness of our sin and we are broken and we come before God and we're thinking, God, how on earth can you forgive a sinner like me? Right When we try to figure out how is this possible that God is able to forgive, David goes to the only place that he can go. David goes before the Lord knowing he did not deserve God's forgiveness, nor could earn it. He doesn't make a plea deal with God. He doesn't bargain with God. He doesn't say, God, I'll clean up my act. Just forgive me. He doesn't come up with a list of things that will be a result of this. He cries out on behalf of the goodness of God. And really, that's our only standing. When you're when you're honest with yourself, when you go before a holy God and the brokenness of your sin, and I'm talking to a church full of people that I believe believe in Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about people that have no Uh, desire to know who Jesus is, and we're inviting them to come and see the goodness of Jesus. I'm talking to people that are here that I believe that have received Jesus through faith and receiving what he has done on the cross. Like I'm talking to people that you, you would agree would be like, okay, we should be that much further along. And yet we realize because of our fallenness and our humanity, we still fall short of the glory of God. Like what do we do in those moments and how do we approach this holy God? David goes before him and he says, God, the only way I can stand before you is because you are full of loving kindness and you are compassionate. He claims 
the compassion and loving kindness of God. God's ability to forgive is certainly a gracious act. Be gracious to me, O God. That's the only way that we can stand is because we have a gracious God. In that way, we should never presume upon God's forgiveness, but wholly rest on the heart of our Father who loves us and He desperately wants us to come home. Now, I could spend all day mining through the depths of just verse 1, but can I tell you that what... What gave David great hope in coming to the Lord was knowing who God is. It wasn't just knowing who David was. David knew who he was. That's why he ran for a year. That's why he tried to control the situation. That's why he was in prison of his own sin. That's why, as we're going to read later on, David had no joy in his salvation. David knew who he was, but what gave David great confidence was that he knew who God was. Listen, the hope for restoration rests in the truth of knowing who God is. Our God is compassionate and his loving kindness is never ending. His love, as the the word loving kindness reveals, is loyal Because that word in the Hebrew, hesed, means loyal love. God is faithful to love. That word compassion in the Hebrew means one who stoops down to the other that is unworthy. Like David in claiming and knowing God's compassion knows that God is one who condescends when we come to him. God comes down to the lowly. The lowly cannot ascend to God. God must come down to the lowly. I think what trips a lot of us up when we sin is that we don't really know who our Heavenly Father is. And that is why it's important for us to develop a relationship with Him when everything is okay. Right? We take no days off in our walk with Jesus. When you do sin and you will, you know who God is and what he has done for you. David's plea is that God would blot out his transgressions and wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, cleansing him from his sin. David need washed from the guilt of his sin. He needed cleansed and he needed made whole again. Brothers and sisters, our Savior, Jesus Shed his blood to cleanse us from all sin. First John 1 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It seems strange to me that red blood makes us white as snow. Like, do you ever cut yourself and get blood on your clothing? Like my first thought is, oh, that's ruined. But it works in opposite. The precious blood of Christ removes, blots out forever the sin that is in your life. 
In verses 3 through 6, David didn't excuse his actions. During this time before he confessed it, after Nathan's confrontation, he was a prisoner to his sin. For a while, David refused to admit that he had sinned. You know that feeling, right? When you have unconfessed sin in your life. Listen, you know that feeling. It gnaws at you. There's a restlessness. There's a... I'm trying to fake everyone else out, but I can't fake myself out kind of understanding. Unconfessed sin weighs you down. David says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. You cannot hide from your conscience. And you cannot fool the Holy Spirit that is inside of you. You may try to busy yourself. You may try to do a lot of good works on the other side of it and think, well, maybe God will see all the good things I'm doing and he'll forgive me then. Or you'll feel better, right? We, we call that therape- therapeutic deism. We try to mask our pain, our suffering that we have caused upon ourselves due to our own sin By saying that we'll do more to erase all the other things. It doesn't work. Misery comes from unconfessed sin. I'm going to say this and please don't like shout out people. Like that you that come to mind. I've met some Christians that are just miserable. They have no joy. There's no life in them. And they know and love Jesus, but they walk through life just unhappy, frustrated, complaining, comparing, going through the list of all those things. And I just wonder what's going on in the heart that needs to be given over to Jesus. While David sinned with and against Bathsheba, and when he and while he sinned against Uriah, David acknowledged that his sin was truly against God alone. Now, what what I don't know, and what I'd love to to know, and maybe this will be a question that I ask in heaven when I see David, because he's going to be there. Is David, did you ever confess your sin to your wife? I don't know. But here in Psalm 51, David does something very appropriate that we need to do when we fall short of God's glory is we need to understand that our actions, our thoughts, our, our motives, you know, what drives us away from God and not towards him is against God and God alone. Now, other people might be affected and we need to take care of that. We need to deal with that and seek reconciliation and restoration with them. But first and foremost, before we deal with anyone else, we need to go to God and we need to make it right with him. We need to take personal responsibility for our sins. This is an important part of true confession. We need to own it and stop making excuses for it. David came to understand that his sin was against God and God alone. 
Verses 5 and 6 reveal the depth of David's sin as he came to understand it more and more. He realized that this wasn't just his first and second sin. Right? It's not like he sinned against Bathsheba and then he sinned against Uriah and he's like, hey, that's all I got. David understood as he looked into the, the presence of the glory of God that he was a sinner through and through. Behold, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Just as a quick aside, verse 5 is one of the strongest biblical proofs that life begins at conception and not at birth. People don't become alive when they're born and come out of the the mother and, and they spank them and they cry. A life is born at that moment that conception takes place. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The root of David's problem began in the womb of his mother. Verse 5 highlights the doctrine of what we call, or theologians call, original sin. That all people from the womb carry a sin nature. No matter how cute and precious they look. Now, I, I, I don't do this, but I, I can't tell you that the thought has never escaped me that when I go and visit newborn babies in the hospital, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the miracle of life and things. But I'm looking at that baby and I'm like, you're just a little sinner that needs Jesus. <laughs> I mean, for real, right? I mean, if you have children and maybe they're adults, um, you, you know, you don't have to teach your children to sin. They just do it. Why? How? Well, because it, in their mother's womb, they were conceived in sin. And it's not mom's fault. That sin nature is passed down through the seed of the father. So dad, it's your fault. <laughs> David understood the root cause of his problems. Verse 6 indicates what God truly wants from us. He doesn't want outward actions. And David references that at the end of the psalm. He doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want all of these things that we do to show God just how faithful we are. What does God want? He wants a heart that is growing in wisdom. He wants honesty and authenticity. For some of us today, it may be the realization that you cannot move forward in your relationship with God until you begin to be truly honest with him. I mean this. If there are things in your life that you've been putting off that you know that God wants you to deal with and you know it. And you're putting it off and you're kicking the can down the road and you think, you know, at a later time when this happens, I'll figure it out. You cannot move forward in your relationship with God while you have things going on in your life that you need to give to Him. And as you confess your sin, 
And as David confessed his sin, we see that now David prays for restoration. And that's where verses 7 through 12 take us. David acknowledged the goodness of God, realized the sinfulness of his sinful heart, and now he prays that God would restore him. In verse 7, we read, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The hyssop was uh, a, a large plant or tree, depending on uh, where you are. And um, they would take branches of the hyssop and they used the hyssop branch in the Old Testament for several things. Uh, first, the hyssop is mentioned in the book of Exodus when God, through Moses, told the nation of Israel to take a lamb and to prepare it as a Passover and to take the blood of that lamb and put it over the lentil of their door, over the doorpost, so that the death angel would pass over their homes and would inflict um, the, the judgment that God had for Egypt. And how did they apply that blood with the branch of the hyssop? We also see in the Old Testament that the hyssop branch was used by the high priests as they went into the tabernacle and offered the sacrifices of the animals on the altar. They would sprinkle it with a hyssop branch. We also see in the Gospels, I think it's John's Gospel specifically, that says when Jesus was dying on the cross, the soldiers that were at the foot of the cross offered him sour wine on a sponge. And it was on a hyssop branch as it was offered up to him. All throughout Scripture, the hyssop branch is a symbol of the cleansing that God gives for sin. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And as I said earlier, the blood of Jesus is what cleanses us. The blood of Jesus is better than any OxyClean that you can find. The blood of Jesus takes any stain out. Any stain. And every stain. Verse 8 reminds us the dangerous place that sin puts us in. David prayed that he would hear joy and gladness. Verse 12 adds that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. Listen. A believer with unconfessed sin in their life is a joyless Christian. You may be singing songs if you have unconfessed sin, but there's no joy. Then David says in verse 8, he makes mention of broken bones. Now, was David in traction during this time? Did he have a full body cast? No, that, I don't believe that's what was going on. The broken bones were likely not literal, but figurative, referring to the misery that sin causes. And if you remember last week, when we were looking in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan confronted David, we looked also at Psalm 32, and it was in there where David said that it, he was in constant misery, that his bones ached, that he had no zest for life. And I believe that's what David David is highlighting here in Psalm 51 that when we sin, it causes a fracture in the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. It causes broken fellowship. It doesn't cause a removal of salvation, but it causes a hindrance in our walk with Jesus. And only when we confess our sins can we be restored. And God wants us to be restored. 
Verse 9 indicates that David couldn't hide from his sin, but God is more than able to hide his face. Like David couldn't run from his sin. He couldn't cover his own sin. He couldn't do anything. But this God that he came to, who is compassionate and full of loving kindness, this is the God that David knew who could hide and turn his face from David's sin. How is that possible? Because when forgiveness is asked for and God grants, God remembers no more. God can turn his face from our sins. God is able to remove our iniquity. He is able to blot out all of our iniquities. Jesus came, as Paul says in Colossians, to cancel the debt of our sin and to pay the penalty for it. And when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to restore us from our unrighteousness. Now, turning towards renewal, David prays that God would revive his heart. And this is where verses 10 and 12 take us. And this is the song that we just sang before I came up to preach. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And if you didn't know it, you were singing scripture when you were singing that song. But David prayed and knew that he needed a clean heart. He prayed that the Holy Spirit would not be taken from him. And just as a quick aside to that, when we began this look in David's life, clear back in 1 Samuel 17, we understood, or 1 Samuel 16, we understood that the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament was different than the Holy Spirit's ministry in the New Testament. That the Holy Spirit would anoint people for specific service and calling. And God's choice for king, the king of Israel, would need God's anointing of his spirit. And we knew that Saul, due to his disobedience, had the Holy Spirit removed from him. And so as the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul, a spirit of trouble was given to Saul, but that Samuel anointed David as the next king and the Holy Spirit came upon him. And David did not want to be like Saul. And he committed terrible sin. And he cried out to God, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He also prayed that he would not be cast away from God's presence. David knew that he could not be in the presence of a holy God when he had serious sin in his life. Well, what about us today when we sin? Well, there's certainly good news for us. Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. When we place our faith in him, he takes our sin away and he gives us his righteousness. And that's what we looked at on Easter Sunday when we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Jesus broke down that barrier that divides us from God. And all who are in the faith have access to God as we stand before him clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. God does not see us as sinful people anymore as a result of Jesus. God sees us as his son's righteousness. And that is why we don't have to go through priests. We don't have to go through to a tabernacle with all these curtains that divide. But because of Jesus, we can enter into the holy place and stand before a holy God and have communion with our father. But let us never forget that any sin in our lives will disrupt our fellowship with God and hinder our relationship with him. And so there's two types of forgiveness that Jesus offers, right? There's judicial forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin. 
in a big picture as we are given the righteousness of God. We all have that in the faith that God sees us as forgiven people. But as forgiven people that still fall short, there's a, a familial forgiveness as a father to a son or a daughter. Because when we sin, our relationship with him is disrupted. It's hurt. We don't feel close to God. And when we cry out in forgiveness, God restores that part of the relationship. The final verses of this psalm conclude with David promising God to be a witness of his grace. It begins in verse 12 or verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Theologian Matthew Henry said this, the best preachers are the ones who are repentant sinners. And and he's not talking about the guy that's standing up here talking to you right now. He's talking about us as witnesses of the grace of God. The best preachers in a fallen world are people that understand that they have fallen short. And yet God, by his grace, has forgiven them and they are living a changed life. You want to make a difference in your neighbor's life? In your family member's life that isn't walking with Jesus? Don't just send them to our website and say, listen to this sermon. Now that's, that's all right. Be an example to them of what it means to walk with Jesus and live a repentant life. Teach others about the holiness of God and his abundant grace and mercy. The Lord saved David from the blood guiltiness of killing Uriah. David should have died. The law required it. But he says, God... Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. David then had a song to sing. The end of the verse says, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The loudest singers are the ones who know they are forgiven by God. In this commitment to worship, David understands in verses 15 through 17 that God is not concerned by the external act of our worship. He's looking at true sacrifices, ones of a broken and contrite spirit and heart. What does God want as a sacrifice? He doesn't want a long list of things that you promise to never do again. He wants you to come with a broken spirit. And a repentant heart. God delights in the heart that realizes that apart from him, that heart is broken and lost. Listen, we come here every Sunday. And we approach God every day as ones who are desperately broken by sin. But in Jesus have been incredibly healed and restored. The last two verses show that as king, David realized that his sin, his personal sin, was affecting the relationship that the nation that he was overseeing was in peril because of his sin. His sin carried far-reaching consequences, and his restoration caused him to plead for the favor and security of Israel. Doing so, God would delight in the offerings of Israel again. And so as we close our look at this text, 
I want to offer you three practical things to think about as you consider Psalm 51. The first, and I already said it, is pray this psalm often. I mean it. Familiar, familiarize yourself with David's prayer for restoration. And in faith, pray it to God. It's an excellent model for us that gets to the heart of the issue every time we sh- fall short of God's glory. Second, grow in your hatred of sin more and more. Rather than summarizing lists of all the things that are bad and sinful, I submit to you today that you revel in the glory of God. And you see him for the holy God that he is. And when God is big in your life, sin will diminish. And finally, remember where David began in this psalm. Our Father is abundant in compassion and full of loving kindness. Psalm 51 reminds me of one thing in a big way. That God desires us in fellowship. He loves us. And because of Jesus, we always have a way to come back home. We need to know it here. We need to have lives that find joy and peace here because we know what Jesus has done. And then we need to walk in that joy that He gives through fellowship with Him. And when we fall short, O sinner, come home. Claim the goodness of God and turn away from your sin and find His grace. Let's pray.